Legal disclaimer here, I received a complimentary copy of the book Learning War by Trent Hone from Naval Institute Press for content production. Welcome to another Military History Verbalized podcast. And today we have Trent Hone, the author of Learning War, the evolution of fighting doctrine in the US Navy from 1898 to 1945. Welcome, Trent. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Could you give us a brief background on on your expertise and what you've done before and what your job is? Sure. So I have been fortunate to bring together two things. I have a I have day job. I work as a management consultant, helping organizations uh, learn faster and get better at what they do. And then I am also a historian. So I have been writing and uh, speaking, <clears throat> researching U.S. Navy's doctrine, uh, particularly in the early 20th century. I've written a number of different articles. Uh, the first one did back to 2003 was published in the Journal of Military History. I was fortunate enough to have one that was in uh, the Naval War College Review that won a few awards couple of years ago. And I have tied up the research from those different articles and encapsulated them in the book that you just referenced, which came out earlier this year uh, from the United States Naval Institute. And I'm excited to talk more about it. Excellent. So today we are focused only on one chapter, mainly the CRC, the Combat Information Center. To go ahead a bit deeper, it's about your book is about the evolu evolution of fighting doctrine. And for me, uh, one or two years ago, I tried to look into doctrine and find a proper definition or something. When I read into fleet tactics, everything, it was just, I came, I think I started collecting definitions for it from different books. And so since your book is around, uh, is concerned with all this, what is your take on doctrine? I think that is an excellent question. And your experience is not unusual. Doctrine can be a nebulous concept, different organizations, uh, different military forces define it in slightly different ways, even in different time periods. And one of the things that was challenging for me with uh, the research was trying to get into the frame of mind that officers in the United States Navy had in the early 20th century. And I think they had a really useful uh, definition of, of doctrine. They used it in two slightly different ways. They would talk about uh, fleet doctrine. That's, that's more like what we would think about today. What is the doctrine of the military force, the Navy as an organization? But they would also use doctrine to talk about the specific set of guidance and instructions that a particular task force had. Um, that was much more temporal. That is, it, it wouldn't last very long. It'd be very specific for a particular circumstance. And sometimes that terminology bled into and overlapped with what the Navy called plans, which were you know, the specific plan of battle that was going to be used for an upcoming uh, fight. So thinking about the first one, the, the fleet-wide doctrinal definition, what I conceptualize it as is a, a set of, of mental models. It's, it's the implicit and explicit assumptions that the officers are going to use to try to bring cohesion to their work as they go into battle, uh, as they fight an enemy. And it's got to be sufficiently uh, coherent so that they can act together, right? They have shared assumptions about what to do in particular circumstances, but also sufficiently flexible that they've got enough room to exercise their individual initiative towards the overall goals that they have. And this borrows quite heavily from the work of uh, Dudley Knox, 
who was instrumental in crafting the Navy's first real doctrines uh, in the period before the United States entered World War One, and then immediately following and in the early 1919, 1920, that time frame. And I think it's a definition that a lot of people in the United States Navy at the time uh, would have agreed with. The Task force doctrine tends to get a lot more specific. It's, you know, we're going to uh, try to fight it at this kind of range. We're going to, you know, open fire with our guns first and then use our torpedoes later. Uh, we're going to uh, try to maneuver as a single unit, or maybe we're going to have a, a distributed uh, task force that is cooperating. Those kinds of lower level doctrines tended to be a lot more um, instructional. Uh, but they were guiding towards the same end, which is let's give us all a shared picture, a shared set of assumptions so that when we can't communicate uh, effectively, uh, when the battle is at hand and when we're trying to react to what the enemy is doing, we can we can act cohesively. We can act together. So if I understand this correctly, the, the basically one of the goals of a doctrine is to to provide some guidelines, but not ones that are too rigid to, to kill initiative, but also good enough to have a good information flow going on, or not an information flow, a, a basic understanding that you don't have to explain everything, but not too rigid that the initiative is killed. Exactly. Yes. Yes. That's that's exactly what it needs to be. And and one of the the terms that I use in the in the book, I borrow a lot of language from um, complexity theory. Is is the idea of an enabling constraint, right? You can have different kinds of 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 constraints, and complexity constraints are like the rules uh, around which people self organize. And some of these can be very constrictive, and some of these can be um, can can offer up more creativity. One of the examples I like to use, because a lot of us are familiar with these different paradigms, is, is traffic flow. So we've all come to a stoplight, you know, and you have to stop at the stoplight, and you sit there and you wait until the light turns green. And that's a constraint, but it's a constraint that doesn't give you much flexibility. You just you follow the light. You don't have to think. Uh, but if we come to a traffic circle, and one of the things that I think is quite amusing is, in general, uh, my fellow citizens of the United States are not very good at negotiating traffic circles. But anyway, <laughs> when I've driven around them in, in Europe or New Zealand or other places like that, they can be very exciting um, because, you know, you have to negotiate with the rest of the traffic. You understand, yeah. have to understand what the rules are. Um, but the flow can be much better and much more dynamic than a, than a traffic light. So I, li I like that example. Yeah, that's a very good example because when I did my driver's license, we basically had nearly none or they just introduced them. And, and now I can see the benefits because initially I think we also were in Austria. What is, what is with this circus? It doesn't make sense. <laughs> so, so in another way, to a certain degree, one could see doctrine a little bit like oil. If you, if it's too, you need the right amount and it, it must be the correct one. If it's too much, you, you break the engine. If, if, and if you have not enough, you have too much friction. Oh, yeah. That's a really interesting way to think about it. I like that. I like that because you could also think about different grades of oil for different temperatures or different operating conditions. Yeah. 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 That's a good. I was thinking about this because I, I previously had one. I think I was thinking about sand and, and filling up. The spaces between the bricks or something. Uh, this was ah. the first one I had a few years ago, but but it's this is not flexible enough, and also sand usually is not a positive association. <laughs> well, certainly not when you think about engines. <laughs> yeah, definitely not. Back then it was also a building, but the building is also static, and the engine, yeah, it's it's more dynamic, and it's a lot about, about dynamics from what I read so far. So let's go to the to the combat information center. 
my first association when I read about it for me, it was like, it's like a real-time general staff. And mm. then furthermore, then took on, when it developed more like um, commanding or more initiative, like uh, giving the, the command to fire early on and not sometimes waiting for the captain. I think there was one example against the torpedo bomb attacks during night where, where the initiative was then from the CRC. What do you think about this view of mine as a layman? Uh, th there's a lot in what you just said. Let me react first to the idea of a real-time general staff. I, I think that is a wonderful conceptualization because it, it, a good CIC is going to fulfill some of the same functions as, as a staff. A CIC is, is a, a sense-making organization. So let me backtrack a little bit and talk about some of the history. One of the things that the, the U.S. Navy discovers in the early years or at least the early years of the American involvement uh, of World War II, is that there's too much information that is now available to ship captains and formation commanders uh, because the, the Navy has introduced radars. Uh, there is a new um, very high-frequency radio set that allows ships to communicate in real time. And uh, a lot of the fighting is at night, so it's very hard to see very far uh, with, with eyes, although there are lots of reports that come in from lookouts. And so... It, captains and formation commanders have been accustomed to trying to keep track of all this information in their head to um, synthesize it rapidly and then act on it. And it, it, there's just too much of it now. They can't do that. And so what a good staff will do, right, is uh, evaluate available information, explore different alternatives, you know, challenge the assumptions of a commander so that uh, a military force can make the best decision. Ideally, that's what a staff should be doing. So it, it, conceptualizing this combat information center as a real-time staff, I think, is, is a pretty good analogy because what's going on is something very similar. The combat information center is taking all that information from the various sources, assessing it and analyzing it a, as rapidly as possible in real time and providing actionable information to the ship or formation commander so that he, um, and it was he during all this time, could, could make that decision. That makes a lot of good sense. Uh, I, I like that conceptualization because it's it captures it very well. Now, you made reference to torpedo plane attacks. One of the things that the Japanese learned, right, so the CIC gets very good at analyzing, disseminating this information and allowing the ship commander to act on it. The Japanese discovered that if they hovered at a certain range or orbited, hover is the wrong word, right? Because they have airplanes. They're orbiting at a certain range outside of really the effective distance of the uh, US ships and aircraft fire at night. And they would orbit in that formation. And then periodically, one of the planes would separate from that formation and come in for an attack. And they would do this one at a time because it was difficult to detect that movement of the one plane around uh, out of the orbiting group. And so they discovered that if they did this, they could get inside the decision loop of the combat information center to the ship commander, to the order to fire the guns, um, and they could get on a, an attack before being shot down. So the adjustment that the American ships made was, well, let's not pass the information from the CIC to the ship commander. Let's just have the CIC order, you know, because they have they have detected this incoming plane. Let's just have them order the guns to open fire um, and not wait for putting the commander in the loop. 
so one of the things that I think is quite interesting about that is it it shows how, you know, initially the Comet Information Center was just this augmentation function. And then they allow it, if you think of it as a real-time staff, they allow this real-time staff to assume more decision-making capability, more initiative, so that they can make decisions even faster. And, and in this example, shoot down those incoming torpedo planes before they could reach the launch point. It's very interesting. So we talked a bit about the Comet Information Center. What can we assume this? I read a bit of this is like it's more or less a room and on a, then there's certain rules at certain points established at one point that the people are there and there. So for, for, for people who don't have any idea, how would you describe a Comet Information Center early on, how it looked more or less or what, what you can imagine? Well, early on, one of the things that's very interesting is early on, there's a lot of variability and, and flexibility. Different ships would do this in different ways. Some of the first ones were just uh, an officer, like the executive officer or someone else, uh, looking at a PPI, a plan position indicator radar screen. That's that's the radar screen that most of us are all familiar with now that is a, a top-down view with the the radar in the center and then potential targets as blips around the the outside and also the geography uh, right 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 so that's very very simple um it doesn't have as much capability the officer monitoring that screen has to keep a sense of what's going on in his head uh, as time went on, they began to develop more uh, regimental layouts of what the, the what the CIC would look like. There was a lot of experimentation to figure this out. And one of the things that they decided upon was to have it divided up basically into four quadrants. So uh, at the fore part of the ship, they would have plots. And a plot is a it's it's like a top down view, but it's um, been done with a with a grease pencil so that you can visualize uh, not just what the radar might be showing you right now, but what it has shown you in the past. So you, you could track the relative motions of uh, potential enemy ships or enemy planes. Ships tended to be on, um, you know, the surface contacts would be uh, on the port side of the ship and uh, aerial contacts would be on the starboard side. That would be in the fore part of, of the CIC. And then the other two quadrants in the aft part would be real time, so radar displays again, surface ships or surface contacts to port, and aerial contacts to starboard. And this way, you had a real time section and then a historical section, and all of this would be bubbling up into um, the uh, officer called the evaluator, who was responsible for monitoring everything that was going on in the CIC and then providing the actual information to the ship or formation commander and also to the weapons of, of the ship. Okay, so basically the plot is basically a timeline of the position. Yes, yes. So it gives you a sense of how rapidly some of the uh, potential uh, contacts are moving. So you could tell whether or not like an aerial uh, group of enemy planes was coming at you or potentially coming at some other part of the formation and take action accordingly. Uh, the same with uh, potential surface contacts, right? If they've just executed a very rapid and uh, coordinated turn away, then maybe they've just fired torpedoes and you need to take evasive action. So can I imagine you, you mentioned these quadrants and is everything, these plots and also the real-time information, can you see it from one position or do you have mover or more or less? I mean, of course, it depends on the ships because it's real small and everything. 
That's the intent. So oftentimes the evaluator would stand in such a position in in the forward part so that he could see the plots and and in such a position so that he could see the surface plot and the aerial plot and make sense of them both together and then very quickly uh, be able to synthesize that information and and provide uh, details to to the captain. Different ships experimented with different approaches. So one of the things that you see fairly commonly in pictures is uh, particularly on, on carrier CICs, there will be a vertical plot, um, a, a large glass or wall essentially. And um, some of the the men who are manning the CIC are writing on that, but they're writing on it in reverse so that people on the opposite side can you know, quickly eat, uh, see that and, and make sense of it and, and read what they write. I think that would be quite a challenge to be able to write quickly in reverse uh, yeah. so that it's legible to someone else. <laughs> I'm glad I never had to do that. Yeah, I can't even write normally that somebody else can read it. <laughs> And I was just, I was just thinking about it, doing that. It's like, okay, I can't, I never could do that job. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> can you write that somebody can read it reverse? <laughs> Not even normally. About the the evaluator, did he provide the information proactively to the captain, or was he more like he was getting? Um, called upon for, for information? Ideally, uh, proactively, right? Because the situation is dynamically changing and uh, he wants to make sure that the captain or the formation commander is well informed. So um, you know, regular updates should be provided uh, and especially any time that, that the circumstances are dynamic or, or changing. It was very important that the, the uh, captain and the evaluator have a good working relationship. Uh, so they, they get a sense of each other, they become a team. They know how to work together. I think uh, this is one of the things that is also very interesting to me. I mentioned there was experimentation. There were different setups for the uh, common information centers early on. I think uh, what you see also is a lot of experimentation with, you know, how should this work? Um, what is the best choice in terms of who should be the evaluator? Ultimately, they settled on different different ship types had um, different recommended officers for the evaluator. Uh, destroyers, it was generally the executive officer. Uh, battleships, the, the executive officer already had uh, a designated role as the as the officer in charge of the secondary conning station, uh, ready to take over in case there was any casualty to the first. So it had to be someone else. And I think battleships, if I remember right, had flexibility in picking who that officer would be. So they're very, very important choices there. And, and I think you can see from the performance of different ships, sometimes, you know, the evaluator does a pretty good job and, 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 and sometimes not. Um, I note in the book that uh, one of the destroyers at the, at the Battle of Empress Augusta Bay, the Combat Information Center becomes confused <laughs> and ultimately uh, identifies the the Japanese cruisers as, as friendly ships, so so that that ship misses an opportunity to make a torpedo attack on them from a relatively close range. Part of that problem was because the the combat information center was uh, several decks below the bridge. So when the combat information center sort of lost a sense of what was going on, the captain went down to see what was going on. You know, and it takes uh, several minutes to transit up and down the the ladders. And from you know one of their recommendations out of that was you know put put the CIC at the same level as the bridge. So that if there's any confusion, if there's any problem uh, between that evaluator captain interface, the captain can very quickly go to the CIC and and um, see for himself what is going on. Now for for 1943, you mentioned the Japanese didn't had any 
equivalent to the to the CIC. Did they over the 44 and 45 develop something similar? I don't think so. I think that they are still more akin to an earlier variant. So so the Comet Information Center, as I said, is is like a a very rapid real-time sense-making organization. You, you called it like a real-time staff. And I think the Japanese are more, still wedded more towards a um, more traditional staff approach uh, for their ship handling, which, you, you know, the Navy had radar plots before the CIC. Um, the, the, the difference is that they're not uh, able to first, you know, gather all the information as rapidly um, and the second makes makes sense of it. It's more well. Here's the information. You know, the captain will have to come and check it out, um, and and use that to uh, foster his his decision making. And I think the Japanese were closer to that. One of the um, I think effective signs of that, or or indications of of some of the challenges that the Japanese had later in the war, is their operations at um, Surigao Strait, uh, the Battle of Lodi Gulf. Right, they have a they have a formation that comes up the strait and it's attacked by a series of American destroyers on its way north. And the Japanese appear confused through through most of this. They they don't seem to be able to um, identify where the American attacks are coming from. Um, and they they sail right into um, the American battle line at the end of the strait, um, seemingly unaware of the fate that is is awaiting them. And so, although they did have some some radars, they they don't seem to have been terribly effective, and they don't seem to have been very good at uh, assessing or analyzing the information that they might have provided. For me, the question would be why the Japanese didn't do this. And now I'm I'm speculating, so <laughs> be careful. I mean. <laughs> I know that the Japanese had an extremely high training standard before the war, which of course deteriorated usually with all nearly all Axis nations because they took heavy losses and couldn't replace them fast enough, whereas the Allies usually caught up with the training rather fast. And I mean, they also lacked to a certain degree radar. So they never could it be that the Japanese never had this information overflow to such a degree like the US Navy had. And so they tried to gradually deal with it, whereas the U.S. Navy at a certain point with radar and all the other information coming in was just overloaded and they said, okay, we need something new to deal with this. We have a real challenge here. I, I think that I think that that's an interesting hypothesis. One of the things that, that I do know is that the, the Japanese were much more successful at maintaining the, um, their organizational uh, structure, right? So, so one of the challenges that the United States Navy faced is uh, they had um, pre-war organizations, you know, destroyer squadrons and, and cruiser divisions and the like. And they had assumed that during the war, those would be relatively stable and that the familiarity that developed between those ships and their commanding officers would lend some cohesion in battle. That assumption doesn't hold true. The pressures of a war in the Atlantic and the Pacific simultaneously force the U.S. Navy to sort of redistribute ships and, and men in a much more ad hoc fashion. The Japanese maintain much more coherence to their formations. So one of the reasons that they perform better in a lot of uh, the early night battles is because they have some greater coherence there. They don't face the same kinds of challenges that the United States Navy does. Another thing that appears to have happened, I have less evidence uh, about what was actually going on with the Japanese because I haven't been able to consult the, the primary sources. Um, I don't speak Japanese, which is part of the problem, is they seem to have been less interested in gathering 
lessons. So uh, one of their their uh, destroyer captains, his, his name is Hara. He his his um, memories of the war are translated uh, in a book called Japanese Destroyer Captain. And one of the things that he notes there is after he's been in a series of of night battles, he comes back. Uh, to a base and you know his destroyer survived and he and his uh, crew are just you know sort of shuttled off there's no effort to try to bring him back uh, to meet with his staff or any other command structure so that he can share the lessons that he's learned the the skills that he and his crew have developed to ensure the survival of the ship um, so there's no institutional pattern of, of gathering uh, combat experience and, and then learning from that. It's not to say that the Japanese didn't do it. I mean, obviously, they, they, they learned and they evolved their tactics. But um, Hara's experience suggests that that approach was less systemic than what the United States Navy was instituting, particularly in the Pacific Fleet under uh, Admiral Nimitz, where there was a uh, and this is one of the points that I make. There was a, 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 an institutionalized pattern of trying to learn from experience. And I think that's one of the things that, that allowed the United States Navy to come up with the CIC and uh, adjust to what was being learned during the war. Yeah, I mean, I personally, I mean, this is my impression and it's a cultural impression. It's so very, very, very dangerous and maybe politically incorrect. <laughs> um, the United States in general has a very... Um, open and positive approach to information flow. I mean, you can see it. I use a lot of sources, uh, United States Army or U.S. Marine Corps publications because they're public domain. Mm -hmm. whereas, whereas in other countries, it, it's basically sometimes insane to get these or, or no chance at all. And, and sometimes after 50 years, they are not declassified yet. And in the United States, you give, oh, here's a, a field manual from 2011, public domain. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it's like okay. And in, in Germany, for instance, the the Bundesarchiv, the the Federal Archive, mm -hmm. they they put out the, a lot of images, but they are under the share alike license, which means if I use them, I have to adopt the same license they have. Oh yes, right. So basically, it's it's one could say enforced communism to a certain degree, and and, <laughs> and I've put twenty hours in a video, and then I have to use the same license they used on a picture of a of a tiger tank from world war ii they, they put no effort into it it's like um yeah i'm can't i can't use this picture because everyone else can use my video then so all right it's very cool. interesting to for me to see this all the field manuals also from second world were digitized and everything from from germany i have to buy them from from second hand bookstores or something so very mm. different this i mean it's the same with the free speech with With the United States, I think is really good in 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 gathering information and also getting talent. In Europe, I only only can see a brain drain going on, and it always goes to the United States for for the complete 20th century. You're really good at sucking up all all the, the <laughs> all, all the all, all the brain juice from from Europe and everything else. <laughs> that's that's a that's a very interesting perspective. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I think I think there is some some truth to the idea that that there is, um, and and I I start the the book with a discussion of uh, what was going on in the late 19th century in terms of the United States Navy and its 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 transition to a professional organization, and I think that that is that is part of it. They they were the officers of that time were spending a lot of time trying to figure out, you know, what what does it mean to be uh, a professional naval officer? What is what is what is this? What is naval strategy? What does it mean to us as Americans? Um and they're wrestling with that question, but they're doing it in 
in a very American way. Um, you've have highlighted the openness of information that is, I think, a, a, um, a, an American characteristic. Um, something else that, that was very that that they struggled with was um, the importance that American politicians placed on the idea of civilian control. Right. So, so uh, one of the things they want to do, the officers at this time, is they want a naval general staff, uh, and they'd like to have something akin to what the Prussians had had developed before the war with France in 1870. And um, the American, you know, congressmen and senators, <laughs> they'll have none of that because you know that to them was uh, a potential subversion of the idea of civilian control. And so the mechanisms that uh, the United States Navy comes up with are an interesting marriage of uh, the desire to have greater military authority over over planning and preparing for war, but at the same time, respect the fact that uh, in the United States, the civilian government has to remain ultimately in control. Uh, so, so two of the things that get invented are, are the general board, which comes about in 1900, and then the office of the chief of naval operations, which is initially authorized in 1915, uh, and then is strengthened in 1916 after it, it proves its worth. So I'm not sure exactly how that relates to the openness of information, but I do think that the uh, the characteristics of the American nation are are an interesting part of the story. Yeah, I mean, this is kind of related. Um, the if you look at it. Prussia was mainly a land power, whereas the United States, I would say, is a land power, but it predominantly is a sea power because you have to cross the Atlantic or the Pacific to attack it, unless you're Canada or Mexico, which is less of a threat than like for Prussia, Austria, France, Russia, and everyone else. Hmm. So, and this military historian, Gerhard Groß, he points out that he, he made the, the comparison with, with Prussia, Germany, and 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 United Kingdom, because he sees conscription to a certain degree was a necessity for land powers because they have a very limited amount of time to get the war machine going. Whereas mm -hmm. a sea power is is always it's a long duration. I mean, also naval strategy, as one of my professors said, is is build strategy. You're talking <laughs> years, sometimes decades, to build up a fleet and everything. So, for instance, there's less of a necessity to a certain degree for a channel staff if you're sitting on a between two oceans. In in this context, because there's less of a necessity and 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 threat from the outside that you can say, okay, you can actually afford this. Whereas, for for instance, Germany or the Prussians were always concerned about two front war. It's it's like, I mean, sometimes you could say it's projection because. They were quite aggressive <laughs> as well. So, so it's always like, for me as an Austrian, it's always like Germany, the force in the middle. And I, I, lo I look at the map and I mean, it really depends on what time you look at the map. But Austria is usually in the center of Europe <laughs> and, and Germany is to the north of Europe. At least they have the Baltic Sea. Yeah, because we, it's, okay, there's, there's not much here. I'm, I think we are the guys in the center, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that is... That is fascinating. I, I know I know less about it, um, but one of the things that I think is very interesting about Germany's history is there is this very uh, legitimate, I'd say, fear of getting caught in in two front wars through the course of the twentieth century, and and yet Germany manages to start two two yeah. front wars. <laughs> <laughs> 
I mean, usually, usually they extend it to a multi-front war rather fast to 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 evade a two-front war. Right. <laughs> we don't like a two-front war. Okay, let's make it at least three then. Okay. <laughs> yeah, two is the wrong number. Let's make it three. <laughs> but but back to the CIC. Nearly the whole chapter was focused on night combat, and and I know that the Japanese were extremely well trained on night combat from the very get-go. So to a certain degree, it could also be that the, the CIC helped bridge the gap in, in the experience the Japanese had in night combat against the US Navy? It's a, it's a reaction to it, absolutely. Um, and bridging the gap, that's, a, that's an interesting way to put it. Uh, one of the things that I've tried to show with my research, both before the book and then, and then in the book itself, is that there's an assumption based on uh, an examination of what happened during the war and and an inadequate look at what was going on before the war. But the, and the assumption is that the United States Navy didn't prepare adequately for, for night combat. And I think that that's slightly, it, it, that needs to be modified. I think it has some truth to it, but there was a lot of preparation that went on for night combat. It's It's tailored or adjusted by virtue of the fact that the Navy was assuming that night combat would take place as part of a major fleet action. So there was an emphasis on uh, nocturnal destroyer attacks, or it's not just destroyers, but destroyers supported by cruisers against an enemy formation or uh, repulsing that kind of attack coming against uh, against the Navy's formation. So the large exercises of the 1920s and 30s, particularly the 30s, uh, the fleet problems, a lot of them had a um, part that, that focused on that, that was uh, trying to explore how they could best protect the fleet at night or how could they, they could best attack a Japanese formation at night. So there's a lot of planning and, and thought that goes into this and some more sophisticated techniques developed. One of the things that that assumption it unfortunately anchors the the thinking of the United States Navy. They they get they begin to think about destroyer attacks as something that's going to come after you fight your way through an enemy screen. That is, so you have to you have to use your guns first to uh, blow past enemy destroyers or cruisers that are escorting the battleships or other uh, large ships at the center of the formation, and then you can get close enough to fire your torpedoes. So there's an overemphasis on using gunfire first and then torpedoes second. And so the U.S. Navy's tactics emphasize this use of gunfire um, and subordinate the use of stealthy torpedo attacks. The Japanese, bit different. Um, and, and you see it at uh, the Battle of Savo Island in August 1942. The Japanese are very skilled at you know, sighting the enemy, opening fire with torpedoes, and then holding their fire with their guns until about the time that the torpedoes would arrive at the target. So essentially what you get at the target is this simultaneous barrage of torpedoes and gunfire erupting. And it's, it's really... Uh, devastating, especially when you consider the fact that the Japanese had uh, invested in very large, powerful, long-range torpedoes that were seen as uh, their uh, counter to the fact that they weren't allowed by treaty to have as many battleships. And so, the, you know, the combination of these very powerful torpedoes and and their effective use of stealth 
is what makes them so very effective. And so the, Jap- uh, the, the Americans have to have to shift their thinking. They have to get out of this. We're going to use our guns first. They have to begin to think about how they could return to stealthy torpedo attacks. And it's not until you know the middle of 1943 that they really begin to embrace that. They're thinking about it uh, in late 1942. Ideally, the battle plan for uh, the Battle of Tassafaranga is supposed to work that way, but the American uh, destroyers don't unleash their torpedoes at the right time, and uh, it doesn't work out. Now, we already talked about the Japanese Navy not having a CSE. How about the Royal Navy? Was there something similar there? Yes, yes. And there's a lot of information sharing that goes back and forth. The Royal Navy has something they call the Action Information Organization, which essentially is the CIC. And there, I, I know less about its evolution and its history, but um, a lot has been written about the effective techniques that the British developed uh, to coordinate their aerial formations in the Battle of Britain. Right? They, they have a, a coordinated network to, yeah. to manage uh, those aircraft. And so they use similar techniques for... Uh, carriers uh, and and that information finds its way to the United States Navy and that influences how the US Navy is doing its fighter direction with its carriers and then uh, at the same time the the Royal Navy is developing you know this this sort of surface technique action information or organization which is like the or the equivalent of an American CIC um, to keep track of how its surface ships operate uh, and coordinate their their movements the British seem to have been very effective at it. One of the advantages that they have is they have also invested, not unlike the Japanese, um, a lot in night combat. I think some of this, I'm I'm less familiar with the primary records, but I believe a lot of this uh, results from their belief that it would be, uh, they could have been more effective at at Jutland if they had been able to fight as a fleet at night after the main fleet action. And so in the interwar period, they think about how they might do that. Um, they're also reacting to the fact that their battle line, also restricted by treaty, is a bit older um, and less capable than some of the other nations of the world, like the Japanese. They think they'll be able to fight at night better than the Japanese. And so they they deliberately plan for night action. And you can see the, the effects of some of that um, with some of the fighting against uh, the Italians in the Mediterranean. About the Italians and the Kriegsmarine? I don't think they had an equivalent. I think they're more akin to what the Japanese had developed, which is a, a reliance on older um, plots and so on. The Germans did make effective use of, uh, of, of radar, at least for fire control. Um, I'm not sure how well they utilized it in terms of you know making sense of the situation in real time with um, search radars and the like. Do you have anything to add before I have my final question? um well this is this has been a very pleasant conversation so i appreciate that i I appreciate the opportunity and um i do just want to say i mean i know we've been focused on the on the combat information center uh i think anybody who is interested in how the u.s navy organized itself to, to fight effectively through the course of the two world wars would probably find the material in my book interesting uh it's got a heavy slant towards doctrine as we've discussed and also uh, learning and how how you evolve doctrine in order to get better so uh, i encourage your listeners to check it out if they're interested i can definitely recommend it i must add here i received a free copy from naval institute press so i might be biased and i need to mention <laughs> this so 
<laughs> I also very much enjoyed this conversation. And now I have my final question because you noted in the conclusion of your CSC chapter that it was a revolution. And from basically everything I read of history and military history in the last two years and what I heard, nearly every historian nowadays stretches that everything that was previously a revolution was just an evolution. I mean, might, maybe there was some exception I missed it. So what is your take on this? Was it really a revolution? Was it an evolution or? I, I, well, uh, first, I think, I think that these are very, these are very loaded uh, terms. They have a lot of meaning. So earlier we talked about uh, a doctrine and you explained how it can mean different things to different organizations at different times and different people. And I think evolution and revolution are, are facing something similar. I, I believe that there's been a bit of a backlash to the uh, revolution in military affairs, as it was called, um, and that thinking that, you know, that it's, it's always got to be something new. So I think, I think the, the trend towards calling things evolution is, is, uh, to some degree, probably a response to that. Um, I very deliberately call the the CIC and some of the other things these innovations that that the Navy went through uh, revolutionary because I, I do think that they are introductions of something that can transform an organization's approach and and so for me that's kind of the definition of revolution is it is it a transformative step that really changes how uh, an organization approaches and thinks about the problems that it faces. And I think the CIC is a great example of that because it is a shift in organizational structure that has to occur in order to fully realize the advantage of a new technology. In this case, we're talking about uh, radar, but you know, information from wards than just radars comes into a CIC. Uh, destroyer CICs are also dealing with sonar, um, there and and all these uh, new radio communications that are coming in. So to take advantage of those new technologies to really make them effective, a new information processing organization had to be created within the ship or within the force because. Uh, the Navy moved from just having CICs aboard a ship to having a task force CIC that was a network of the CICs within um, the task force. And so to, to realize the advantages that those new technologies offer, you have to have this change in organization, a change in the human interface to the technology, and that's what the CIC represents. And so I would argue that it is revolutionary because it's, it, it fundamentally changes how in this case the U.S. Navy goes about dealing with that, um, and I think it gives it a significant advantage, particularly in, in the Pacific when it, in its um, battles against the Japanese in the latter half of, of World War II. So that's my answer, so, and I'm I'm happy for people to you know come at that and criticize it because I think we'll all learn something from the exercise. So when I understand it correctly, so it have a revolutionary impact. Oh, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. Okay. This is this is I think I've, this is very interesting. You look at it this way because from what from what usually the argue is that, for instance, Sturmtrupp tactic or, or what is usually called Blitzkrieg, which uh, mm -hmm. I, I call Bewegungskrieg, this was there all the time. It, it developed slowly, and then the impact was also revolutionary. But the development was was evolutionary. So for the CIC, what was before the CIC? Before the CIC, you have more traditional uh, plots. So for, for the Navy, for example, you had a radar plot. And, and one of the things that uh, in, in early CIC communications, 
I forget whether it's from, I think it's from the destroyer uh, type command in the Pacific fleet says, you know, this is not just a, a new radar plot. This is a fundamental change in how we manage information. Um, so they're contrasting what came before with what is now. And, and so, uh, we've talked about some of the things that, that make it different. You know, the CIC is more real time. The CIC is all ship forward information consolidating and coming together, not just from a particular technology or information source. Uh, and it's, it's synthesized in such a way that, that, the the officer in charge, the evaluator can make sense of it and provide actionable information to the command structure. So those are some things that, that make it different. Um, and that's what came before, you know, a more traditional plotting organization, um, that placed more, placed more burden on the ship captain. I, I, I'm, I'm torn. I, I can't, I, I, I don't know enough. It, it could, it could act, it, it could actually quite, uh, be a revolutionary, not just from the impact, also from the development, because there was so many stuff going on. Mm. Because if you look, for instance, um, with, with, with the Germans, with um, mobile warfare or something, they always did it. They were always focused on the movement and the tank just enabled that at this point. And then the organization, the, the Panzer Division, that everyone, everything processes with the same speed. But if you look back at Napoleon, he did already this with horse cavalry, for instance. So in that oh, sense... Sure. So for, for that case, it's sometimes, yeah, it really depends how you argue, because if you look at the impact, it quite often is revolutionary. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think you're, you're making a really, really good point, which is that, you know, there, there are these evolutionary steps. There, there are these, these gradual incremental changes and there are moments when enough of these come together to, um, create a, a differentiation. You know, and I, and I think um, the the German tactics, the Blitzkrieg that you cite, is 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 akin to that. Yes. Uh, oh, so everything that feeds into that has been has been done before. You can you can cite Napoleon's tactics and see the antecedents. Um, but the way that that gets put together in in 1939, 1940, even the opening campaign in Russia is really you know shocking and transformational in a lot of ways. So. Uh, I think the argument we can get lost in is it evolution or, or or is it revolution? But I think what that can lead us to is a deeper understanding of how all these changes can come together to make something uh, that gives one force a decided advantage in a moment in time. And I think that's one of the things that the militaries are trying to capture. Right? How, how do you how do you gain that that momentary advantage that gives you enough time to to win a campaign or a war? And thank you very much for this great talk. Thank you. This has been very, very enjoyable. I really appreciate it.